You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. For so many years, I took in writing. I wrote anything anyone asked me to write for money. I've written everything but cocktail napkins. Now, I don't have to. Now I can write whatever I want. Crime fiction author Elmore Leonard. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. He once famously said that his writing was so crisp and tight because he simply left out the parts that people usually skip over. During a writing career that spanned more than seven decades, Elmore Dutch Leonard produced scores of novels that established his reputation as one of America's foremost and most popular storytellers of the second half of the 20th century. I first met Elmore Leonard in 1986 and then interviewed him every year or two for the next 20 years. In 1990... We had a conversation about his newest novel, the interview you're about to hear, the book we're talking about, Get Shorty, which of course later became a major and very popular motion picture. So here now from 1990, Elmore Leonard. I think it was Publishers Weekly that called this your best yet. Some have. Some reviewers have. Do you think that's the case? I always think that the latest book is the best yet. Nora Ephron in the Times said, took time to say, well, I think La Bravo is better. And 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 uh, some reviewers do that. They say, well, it's not... Some of his earlier stuff I liked a lot better, but it's a good book. Enjoyed it. Yeah, strange. I am just about finished. Well, I'll confess, I'm, I'm still only uh, maybe 30, 40, 50 pages from the end. I haven't found the character named Shorty yet. Well, you've, you, however, you have met some short people in the book. So there, the twist is coming? There you go. It... it <laughs> It's it's so obvious. I don't know why anyone wonders who Shorty is. <laughs> and it's certainly obvious by the time you finish the uh, last scene, yeah. Well, I'm just pulling your chain, but I mean, yeah. I, I was looking. I, I, I literally, for like the first hundred pages or so, I kept waiting for the character Shorty. I figured no. somebody's, there's going to be a character named Shorty in there somewhere. No, there isn't. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, there are short characters in it. <laughs> Short actors. <laughs> this is uh, this doesn't paint an entirely uh, uh, flattering portrait of Hollywood, does it? Well, I think Hollywood be very it would be very difficult to flatter <laughs> Hollywood. It, but it's straightforward. It isn't any kind of a payback. It isn't revenge. It, this is the way I saw Hollywood and enjoyed it. I think you have to keep step back and observe Hollywood, even if you're working there, and not get too immersed in it. You don't want to become one of them, you know. Uh, well, at some point, and start using line. all of their language. Hmm. I suppose it was inevitable sooner or later that you'd write a Hollywood novel. I think anyone who's spent any time there feels obliged to write a Hollywood novel. Yeah, <laughs> it sort of lends itself to that, that surrealistic. It's apart. wide open. I think they. I, correct me if I'm wrong. I, th- I get the impression that Hollywood kind of likes the idea that nobody can paint a, a, a flattering portrait of it. I think they kind of like the seamy side. I don't know if they would ever read anything to find out that that's true or not. The uh, they they're so busy. Hollywood executives are so busy. Yet they have the cleanest desks <laughs> of any business I've ever seen. There's ever, nothing ever on the desk outside of perhaps a few scripts. Uh, they don't write. They don't write memos. 
they phone. They have phones and phones and phones. So you go into a producer's house. There's one in particular I know who's been at Universal quite a long time. I went through his house and I counted his phones and his television sets. He had more phones than television sets, of course, but something like, it was like maybe 20 to 15, something like that. Phones all over. But we were in New York. We were in a suite in New York the other day, and there were more phones in the suite than we have in our house. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. There were phones within three or four feet of each other. Anyway, they, they use the phone a lot in Hollywood. They don't write. I don't think they write to their mothers. I don't think they write to... Maybe they have the secretary send a card. No. What they write on are scripts. They don't write on blank pieces of paper. There are individuals who haven't been out of Beverly Hills, I was going to say, in 20 years. But many of them aren't much more than 20, 21, 25 years old. So they they know how, or they would presume to know how people talk in, in other parts of the country, even though they were in Hollywood High uh, 10 years ago, say. But also it strikes me, as with Chile, that, Everyone, once he gets to Hollywood, thinks he's a writer, thinks he's a producer, thinks he can just get into the movies. Well, I think it's true. Because Chile looks around and he says, nobody's in charge. There is no structure that you have to go through. There are no rules that you have to observe. All you have to have is an idea and money. And you can, and you're a film producer. You get somebody to write it. Chile runs into a guy who knows know more about the business than he does, who says, don't you know how to write a script? He says, it's easy. He says, you get these words in your head and you put them down. You put them down on a piece of paper, just as you hear them in your head. And then you give them to somebody to, to put in the commas and stuff and correct the spelling. It's easy. <laughs> this has a lighter tone. I mean, after reading Killshot, after reading Touch, uh, some of the, some of your other books that I've loved, this has a, a a less imposing tone. Well, it's not a life and death situation as far as Chili, the main character, is concerned. There is someone coming after him, yeah, who wants to kill him. But but that part of it has nothing to do with the film business. It could happen anywhere. So it isn't a life-and-death situation, and I've always felt that you shouldn't take Hollywood too seriously when you're there, that you should uh, just watch it and you know, observe and enjoy it and not take yourself too seriously so that uh, you'll get by all right. After this short break, the time a real person found herself in an Elmore Leonard novel... Back to my 1990 interview with Elmore Leonard. Have you ever given thought to why you're so prolific, or or does it just bother you that people ask all the time? Well, no, I I only do I write one book a year, and I don't think that's so especially prolific. Um, I don't have anything else to do. There are things that I could write that I'm asked to write, um, re book reviews or. Um, tell us about uh, Miami. A magazine wants me to write about Miami or about Jim Thompson or about something or other. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. That's work. That's work. For so many years, I took in writing. 
I had to, I, I was, I wrote anything. Anyone asked, asked me to write for money. I've written everything but cocktail napkins. Now <laughs> I don't have to. Now I can write whatever I want, you see. You know, I get a lot of famous authors in here. I famous big names who, who bellyache about how it takes them three, four years to craft this, this novel that they come up with, and they couldn't possibly turn them out any faster than that. Well, they probably uh, go out to lunch. Take I, meetings? They take meetings, and <laughs> maybe they talk about it too much. I don't know. But they, but you see them, you see pictures of them, them, pictures of them at one of the Hamptons. And they're out there having fun. And when I get into a book, I write the book and, and finish it. You know, it takes me five, six months now. It does, get, it's harder than it used to be. I try to make them better. But I stay with it. I stay with it and I write every day for 9.30 to 6 o'clock. And the, the book is finished, even with interruptions. It's going to be, I know it's going to be finished within six months. And I don't know why it should take any longer than that. John O'Hara was criticized because he turned out so much, so many stories. And he says, well, what am I supposed to do? He says, I'm a writer. That's what you do. You write if, you, if you're a writer. I don't know how some can, like Joseph Heller can get by. He'll, Ten years will go by, and then a book, here comes a book. Oh, he, I suppose he didn't feel the need to write. He hadn't made enough money from Catch-22. But I would think that he would want to write. It's kind of ironic that you put somebody like Stephen King in the position where he's got to write under a different name. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's a certain irony there. Now, even though you don't have recurring characters, the same character coming back novel after novel after novel, you do still, nevertheless, as a writer, have to keep characters fresh. You can't let them get stereotyped. You can't let them get uh, two-dimensional over time. How do you, as you begin each new book, how do you, how do you make sure in your mind that these characters are going to be original and fresh and, and interesting and three-dimensional? Well, I, I think about their background. I think about them off stage. I think about them as children. I think about them doing other things than what they're doing in the book. I, I get to know them. The character starts out, um, as a, as, as a, uh, caricature of a particular type it be he starts out as a type as a type but then as i get to know him then he comes to life he takes on a personality of his own very often in the book there's a minor character a, a character who might not even have a name who emerges who all of a sudden pushes his way into the center of the book and so then you have to give him a name. And then he keeps pushing a little bit more, and you like the way he talks, so you put him in a scene that you hadn't planned on. Before you know it, he's turning the plot. Before you know it, he's the second or third most char- uh, important character in the book. And this is the best kind to have, one who intrudes, who naturally belongs there, and you didn't even suspect it. And that happens in uh, in most books. But I talk to them. I... If the character doesn't, uh, if I'm not having fun with the character, I'll, I'll yank, I'll yank him out, or yank her out, and drop in another substitute character. Now you've got a great ear for dialogue. Do you, do you find yourself becoming as your character Michael Weir in here does, uh, sitting and just absorbing and trying to figure out a character's uh, uh, psyche from his speech? 
from his uh, from from the way he talks? Well, I think you can. I don't see. I don't. I don't sit and I don't lurk and uh, and listen to people talk. You know. Well, they got it's those just, devices now where you can listen clear across the room. You can yeah, just put them in your ears. Yeah, no, there's no need to do that. It's just in your everyday life. You you, you hear people talk, or you're watching. Uh, Wheel of Fortune, and you hear people talk, you know, or in a documentary about convicts or coal miners or whatever it might be, you hear people talk. But now when you listen to those people talk, you do have to listen. It's more useful to listen, say, to a documentary or to a game show or something like that than it is to listen to a movie where it's somebody else's idea of how that character should talk, isn't it? It's... Yeah, you don't want to, you don't want someone no, not a, a, a dramatic show. No, you don't want to hear listen to someone else's idea. No. <laughs> yeah. No, of course not. No, but they're natural on Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> Jeopardy or the wed- the uh the newlywed game or any of those. <laughs> 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 but that's one of the things that I find charming about your books is that they have I wouldn't be surprised to see a reference to Wheel of Fortune in one oh, of your books or had, or yes. to uh, somebody sitting at home watching Gilligan's Island. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> you put in, in here the things that people really do. Yeah, well, in uh, in uh, Killshot, the last book, uh, Jeopardy is playing in the background mm-hmm. while the husband and wife are talking. And Carmen is sort of watching Jeopardy because there's a woman on the show running with the segment, uh, uh, I mean, the category, King's Named Ed. And this is the smartest woman Carmen has ever seen on Jeopardy. Then we come to the final Jeopardy question, and Carmen and the woman, and the smartest woman she's ever seen, both get it wrong, but Wayne, her iron worker husband, gets it right. Two weeks ago, I heard from the woman who was on Jeopardy who had the king's name Ed. <laughs> and she, and she, was, she was reading a kill shot, and she came to whatever the page is, 82 or something. She said, I couldn't believe it. There I am in your book. Not by name. No, just, but does, but she, no, no, does she also get the final Jeopardy question wrong? Yes. <laughs> oh, yes, she did, because I took an actual... Jeopardy segment, yeah. The question was, what two, what two uh, st- adjoining states are Indian words that mean, I think, the color red? Well, right, and I even, I got it, even, I got it wrong, too. I thought Colorado and Utah. And Carmen says to her husband, the iron worker, what do you think it is? And he says, Colorado and Oklahoma. And the, and that's what it is. That's what it turns out to be. That's right. And Carmen says to Wayne, how did you know that? He said, I went bird shooting out there once. See, so it all, uh, it using something like that uh, is, makes, brings these people to life for me. You know, they make some real people. Elmore Leonard died in 2013 after suffering a major stroke. He was 87. And you can find easy Amazon links to Get Shorty and several other Elmore Leonard novels at our website, 
HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure to listen to my interviews with a couple of other writers, contemporaries of Elmore Leonard, the great Robert B. Parker. There was a period there where it was very sophisticated to discover me and to make a point that I was much better than anyone realized. And now it is very sophisticated to discover that I'm nowhere near as good as everyone said I was. And the mega best-selling James Patterson. I am doing a dance with the reader, and and, and we're all we're all in it together. They want to have a good time. I want them to have a good time. On my tombstone, I want it to be Jim kept a lot of people up late at night. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the actress who rocketed to fame, even made the cover of Time magazine with two movies in 1969 and again in 1970, that latter being the classic Love Story, my 1992 interview with Ali McGraw. The first line of moving pictures is, love means never having to say you're sorry. With that lie, millions of boxes of Kleenexes were launched. I mean, the only time I didn't realize what an absurd line that was, was on, like, take 11, freezing cold on that porch where I had to say it. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.